This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. We're in, those of you that are part of this church, uh, you remember that hopefully uh, we're in a Sunday morning message series called The Deadly Seven. But when we began this series, I said that along the way we would probably sprinkle in a few other topics. And as we approach July 4th, we're going to do that. And talk about something that's really been bearing down on me for the last several weeks. To get us going in the right direction, let me begin with a review of just a few of the events this year that have garnered attention around our country. The first news item is not really new, but it just keeps hanging around. This pandemic that we call the COVID pandemic just keeps on giving and giving. And believe it or not, after nearly three years, it's still in the news every day. And you would think that a pandemic such as this one that has taken the lives of over 6 million people globally and over 1 million people in our own country, you would think that something like this would unite us as a country, but not so. This virus actually began a war. It began a civil war. Not over slavery, but with the geographical lines being the north and the south. And not not being the north and the south, but rather the battleground became vaccines, masks, and mandates. And the loss of life has been tragic, but perhaps just as tragic has been the loss of unity. You have good and godly people on both sides protesting and posting on social media their positions. You know what? We as people, we can't understand why everybody doesn't agree with us. You know, because we're right. That's that's the way we think in our own minds. And so during this horrible pandemic, we find America, this nation, that, that we have declared one nation under God, indivisible. We find this nation far from being united. In fact, we find it divided. That's just one news item that has dominated the headlines in 2022. Another situation that has garnered plenty of newsworthy attention is the matter of immigration. And last week in a tragic, tragic loss, there were over 100 migrants that had been jammed into a tractor-trailer rig in Texas. They had been doused in meat seasoning to mask their scent from the dogs. They were desperately trying to find a better life. The cooling system failed in that tractor-trailer rig. Over 50 of those migrants succumbed to, the, to, to heat exhaustion and dehydration. Some of them, as I read this horrifying report, they jumped out of a moving truck to their death trying to escape the horrific heat in the truck. But when it comes to this topic of immigration, again, we all have an opinion. Some say, you know, We've got to put up the wall. We've we got to keep them out. And, and we can't keep allowing them to come in and take our jobs and give them free health care and whatever. And, and then you have others say, no, no, no. You know, we've got to tear down the wall. We've got to let them in. God has called us to show compassion. And, and again, you know, as Americans, we're all immigrants. And so here on this topic, America, again, finds itself fiercely divided. Well, then in the middle of this, there was the breaking news a week and a half ago. Roe v. Wade 
overturned by the Supreme Court after 49 and a half years, and, and many people, and I was one of them, wept for joy as we felt that our prayers had been answered. In fact, my phone started blowing up with notifications. I couldn't keep the tears away. And, and, and finally, the innocent and, and the helpless unborn child had been granted protection. And for those of us that believe that life begins in the womb and should be afforded the same rights that we're afforded, we rejoiced. But on the other side, with equal emotion, equal passion, equal conviction, They wept, not for joy. They wept because they genuinely believed their rights had been violated. They felt that women had now lost control over their own bodies. They, they, they felt that America had regressed 50 years, and, and many of them are questioning if the Supreme Court will now overturn the, the same-sex marriage laws to revert back to laws that only sanction marriage between a man and a woman. And so among some people, there's panic across this nation if you read the news, America has erupted in protests. Again, America is divided. And what hurts maybe the most is that division has even reached the church. And thankfully, and, and I eternally thankfully for the maturity and, and the unity and the godliness in this local church, even though we have many differing opinions, God has helped us to maintain a very high level of unity. But across America... Fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ that, that, that serve the same God, that, that, that read the same Bible. In many cases, they even go to the same church. They're barely speaking to each other because of differences, whether political differences, differences on how we should respond to COVID or differences regarding opinions of social justice. This country that we call the United States of America, this country that has in its pledge of allegiance one nation under God, indivisible, is far from living up to those words that Francis Bellamy first wrote in 1892 with the most recent adaptation of our pledge coming about in 1954. And what's interesting is that in the past, a national crisis, whether whether it be a pandemic or a natural disaster or a 9-11 type of attack from a foreign enemy, seemed to unite our country. We banded and stood together as fellow Americans to support each other and try to defeat whatever enemy had inflicted the pain upon our citizens. Not today. Each crisis seems to only fuel more tension, more discord, more blaming each other, more hatred on social media, more division. And so on the day before a nation celebrates another birthday, it's, it's 246th birthday, I felt I should give a message to the church. Now, some of the messages we give here are tilted towards unbelievers. Some are to the church, some are to both. But this message today is primarily for you, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, whether you're here in the building or watching on the live stream, or listening on the radio, this is for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus. And when you look at what is going on in our country, I, I believe that if pastors stay silent, and if the church stays silent and fails to help inject a sense of conscience into our culture, who will do it? I don't think our government is in a position to have the moral integrity to do it. 
I don't think that our court system is in a position they can't really change hearts. I don't believe that our school system will help develop any type of moral conscience. So, so who's going to step in and provide guidance for a society that appears to have lost its way? Who? The answer is the church. Followers of Jesus. God has called us to be salt and light in this dark, dark world. So today I want to share my burden, as well as some wisdom that I've gleaned from other people. But more importantly, I want to share words from Jesus. Words that are so extraordinarily relevant. Relevant for the ugliness of racism. Relevant for a country that is angry and rioting. Relevant for a country that is going through a pandemic. Relevant for a country that has a divisive political climate. Now I want to begin by asking a question that will help set the tone for our study. And, and if you've been part of this church, you've ha- heard this question uh, that I posed at different times. It's not an original question with me. You've heard it from other pastors. But, but today I want to do more than just pose the question and then move on to another topic, as I've done many other times. But I want to pose this question, and then we're going to talk about this question. And then I want us to force, I want to force us all to personally answer this question. Are you ready for the question? Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics? Now, let me just clarify, when I say, when I use the word politics, I, I'm using a definition that's very broad because it seems that today, and, and I don't agree with it, I don't think it's right, but our country has put current events under the word politics. Our country has put racism and lawlessness and the response to the pandemic and sexual preferences, morality, abortion, uh, we call that politics. And, and, and of course, not all of these are, are, are political matters, but, but for the moment, just work with me. We'll let them stay under that heading temporarily. But again, here's the question. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics? Now, for those of you that are nervous, and I know that whenever a pastor gets up and starts using the word, the P word, the politics word, we get nervous. Just relax. I'm not going to ask you to change political parties, and I'm not even going to ask you to quit watching Fox News or CNN, and I personally don't watch either one, and I'm sorry if that disappoints some of you, but I'm not going to ask you to stop watching your favorite brand of biased news. Today is not about, well, you need to become more conservative or more liberal, or you need to go to the right or more left or more in the center. I'm simply going to ask you to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith, which is something that most Christians struggle doing. We typically create a version of faith that supports our politics. And, and instead of starting with Jesus Christ and, and his word, we typically begin with our upbringing and how we were raised, our political background. And then we begin to build the framework of our faith around the political platform that we've been raised with. And that's why regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat, you quote Jesus. Every political party wants a piece of Jesus. We're, we're convinced, and we truly are. If you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, you are convinced that if Jesus were alive on earth today, and by the way, Jesus is alive, and he is on earth, 
just not in a person form. But, but if Jesus were here as he walked the earth 2,000 years ago, we are convinced that he would be part of our political party. Because in our minds, our party is closer to what the Bible teaches. But today, what I want to do is I want to take the Bible, God's Word, and I want to place it front and center. And we're going to evaluate our politics in light of what Jesus taught. And, and our lesson was going to come from Jesus' words right after uh, he had his final Passover meal with his disciples. He prays a prayer, and it's something called, sometimes called the high priestly prayer. But in this prayer, there are two interesting things. Number one, he prays for us. Ryan, he prays for you. Val, he prays for you. And this, I got choked up in the early service, but he prayed for me. And I'm glad he did. And I felt the need more than ever for his prayers. But number two, Jesus gives a prayer request. Now, if you were raised in a small church like most of us here in the Midwest were, you know, mom and pop churches, just small churches, you remember the prayer request time in church. Remember how churches would, would have two songs of prayer and another song. That's just the way we did it here in the Church of God Holiness. And, and, but right before the prayer, that the pastor would say, does anyone have a prayer request? And, and someone would say, yeah, pastor, you know, my Aunt Bertha is getting ready to have surgery and let's pray for her. And someone would say, yeah, my arthritis. And, 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 you know, of course, the old timers, a lot of times they would call arthritis my Arthur. You know, my Arthur's really acting up and uh, you know, I need your prayers. And I would say, well, you know, my son is going on a road trip to, um, to Shell City or to the end of the earth there. And, and uh, you know how rough of a community that is with the Kent Bell family there. And so we, we need to pray for, that's not even fair. He's not even in this service. He was in the early service. But we need to pray for him as he makes a, his journey to the end of the earth. And, and of course, we all remember the occasional humorous or embarrassing prayer request. Uh, you know, someone that had become an open book. And, um, you know, my father-in-law was a pastor for many years in Michigan, and, and he had this guy that gave a prayer request one day. He said, please pray for my mama. She's in the hospital getting an autopsy and, instead of biopsy. And, and uh, Faith and I were talking about it, just chuckling, and, and uh, we remembered some of your prayer requests here that I'd love to give, but they're too embarrassing to mention in a setting like this. But anyway, the pastor would, would hear the prayer request and say, thank you, thank you. Now, does anyone, what, what came next? Does anyone have an unspoken request? Remember that? And, oh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Let's, let's pray for those. But anyway, the, imagine the pastor asking, does anyone have a prayer request? And, and, and Jesus, who is going into the most difficult time of his life. He's about to be arrested and tried and crucified. He raises his hand and said, yeah, I, I, I do. Now, what do you think Jesus' prayer request would be? Do you think he'll request prayer for the courage to go to the cross? Because crucifixion was one of the most brutal and painful ways to die. I, I would have said, yeah, I'm going to need courage because I, I don't like to hurt. Do you think it might have been a request for his family who would unfortunately watch him die this cruel death? And can you imagine his mom, his mama, watching the nails go in his hands and his feet? So I think it would have been appropriate for Jesus to say, pray for my mom. She's going to need so much strength as she watches me die. What was Jesus' prayer request? 
Let's find out. John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed. Remember a couple of weeks ago we said one of the postures of humility is to bow in prayer, but I also said that there were times when Christ's example was to look towards the heavens, towards the Father, and that was his posture here. He said, Father, the time has come. So how long had Jesus ministered? About three and a half years. Um, He says the time has come. He was about to complete his ministry. Um, I I told the early service that, you know, two days ago marks my 28th year anniversary here at this church. And and I know some of you wish that I would have completed my ministry in three and a half years like Jesus. But I'm in the slow class. It takes me longer. Actually, I think you're in the slow class. It takes me longer to see disciples of Jesus made. Just kidding. But, but Jesus was about ready to complete his ministry. He said, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So something that I want to point out here is that during this terrible hour, when Jesus was crucified, the, the hour in which we would have been most horrified was the hour in which Jesus was most glorified. The horrible death of Jesus ended up being a glorious death. He goes on, skipping to verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. So Jesus would leave the world. His disciples would still be there. He said, I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them. Protect who? Protect the 12 disciples by the power of your name, the name that you gave me. And and the protection Jesus praise for his disciples was not just a physical protection like we pray every day. Oh, Lord, protect me from the virus. I'm going to work outside, you know, protect me from ticks and chiggers and protect me as I go to Shell City, protect me as I do this and that. But Jesus is praying for more than just physical protection. Here's the protection he was praying for, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is facing a brutal death, but what concerned him most was not the intense pain that he would suffer on the cross. It it, it was not the unknown. Do you realize that when Jesus died, he he was going to descend into the depths of hell and fight a battle against Satan? But during all of that, what he was most concerned about was the unity of his disciples. Because here's what Jesus knew. He knew that as long as his followers were in unity with with each other, then they would be a powerful force. But if they ever began to bicker and argue and talk behind each other's back or shoot at each other in social media, then the mission of Jesus Christ would be compromised and it would stall. Skipping on down to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So he's referring to the next generation of Christians that would come after the 12, and then the next generation after that, and then the next after that, leading all the way up to us today. So so 2,000 years ago, years ago, Jesus prayed for Joe Trussell. He prayed for you. He prayed for us. So it began in the first century. It went on up to this next century. He said, what was his prayer request? That they may be one 
And this was not like, well, I just hope they will get along with each other. It goes beyond that. Jesus was saying that his church would be so diverse and would have so many different languages and, and so many different cultures and colors uh, and traditions and, and celebrate so differently the sacrament of communion and, and baptism and, and sing so many different styles of music from hymns to praise courses to contemporary music to rap music to Gregorian chants. To having so many types of instruments, from the bongo drum, to the pipe organ, to the tuba, to the mandolin. He prays that this diverse church would be one, and he continues on and says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that, so why did Christ pray for oneness or for unity? And this is the shocker, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The the reason Jesus wanted them to be one is so that the world, not the people in the church, not y'all, but the people outside the church, that, the people that cuss and swear and get drunk and get high and carouse, so that when they would see the unity of the church, despite the differences, they would be convinced that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And since God created us with the ability to think, of course, at times we will disagree with each other. You know, no, we're different than each other. Of course, we will probably disagree on issues of vaccines and masks. Of course, we will disagree on styles of music. We will even probably disagree with each other on tattoos and political parties and Ford versus Chevy and gun control. And immigration, and brands of cologne, and toothpaste. We will probably even disagree on the late Rush Limbaugh. Yet, it must not affect our unity. Again, why? I, I want to make sure you get this. The unity Christ prayed for is because Jesus said, that will be the telltale sign that you are my disciples, and this is what will eventually get the attention of the unbelieving world. So church... This is a message to the church. Our political rants are clever, sometimes not so clever, or sometimes are very so ignorant social media posts. Our, our conservative or liberal cliches, our right-winged or left-winged leanings, our theology, our particular preference of music will not win over a lost world. I, I've never heard anyone come to Christ because they were awed by our political party. You know, well, what party are you? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm Republican or I'm Democrat. Oh, I'm going to come to Jesus because of that. I've never heard that. And can I bring it down a little bit closer? I've never heard of anyone over the past two years, two years of COVID, come to Christ because of your outspoken stance for or against vaccines or masks. I've, I've never heard anyone say, oh, I just loved your stance on masks. I want to come to Jesus. No. Now, I've heard some people that were turned off by Christians who were so ugly about it, they'd never want to go to their church. In fact, I read this statement, your political candidates will win or lose based on how Americans vote, but the church will win or lose based on how we treat each other. So our rants, 
either for or against the government or for or against mandates or for or against political parties will only push people away from us. Now, obviously, there's a time to stand for biblical principles, but it must be done in such a way to where people will see the love and the kindness and the mercy and the grace. It must not be done as a reaction. We read something and say, well, I'm going to respond. I'm going to retort. And it ends up being in the ugliness of the flesh. Remember, Christians are called to be different than the world. And so instead of just reacting on social media... Maybe it's time that we begin to pray about it first. Sprinkle a little bit, little bit of wisdom and grace and mercy. And, because again, our strong opinionated posts on politics, on masks, on vaccines, childishly calling our government leaders derogatory names, even, those, even though those names sometimes might accurately describe them. Yet that kind of stuff will not bring anyone to Jesus. I promise you that but it might push them away from Jesus and it could hurt your influence. And I know of some really good people, unfortunately, that have basically pushed people away because of their ugly posts on things that did not e involve eternal matters, just surface things, opinions. But they were so ugly that people basically were pushed away from the church. Remember this, that was the upside-down doctrines and values of Christianity that shaped morality in Western civilization. It wasn't politics that shaped our morality. It wasn't Republicans or Democrats or Congress or the Supreme Court. It wasn't CNN. It wasn't Fox News that shaped Western civilization. It was the upside-down, counter-cultural teaching of Jesus. His teaching laid the, the, the groundwork for our sense of justice and fairness and the dignity of every single individual, red, yellow, black, and white, in the womb or in the nursing home. And no, we certainly haven't gotten it right all of the time. But when we did, it was beautiful, and it was winsome, it was attractive, and people wanted to be like Christians. So... Why in the world would we allow ourselves to be divided over things that essentially have had no lasting implications historically? Have we forgotten our history? Maybe we need a little history lesson this morning. Have we forgotten that during our history as a nation, many political parties have turned out the lights because their, the party, their party was over? For example, just a test here. How many of you are federalists? Any, any federalists in the building? Federalists? Any federalists here? And, and you say, well, uh, you know, who were the federalists? They were the first political party in our country. But that party closed their doors in the 1820s. How about this one? Are there any Whigs out there? Not W-I-G-S, but W-H-I-G-S. No hair pieces. Please don't start waving them. Any Whigs? No. You know, they were another political party early in the history of our nation. They believed in big and a big and strong federal government. That party turned out the lights in the 1850s. How about Tories? Any, anybody from the Tories, the political party, the Tories? And um, they came over during the American Revolution, and, and they were actually in opposition, opposition to the Whigs. The Whigs wanted freedom from Britain, the Tories 
didn't want to separate, but a lot of Tories still ended up settling in America. But after the Declaration of Independence in 1776, they lost steam, and the lights were turned out on that party as well. In fact, I did a little research this past week into parties that are now defunct. And, and in one list alone, and I'm sure it wasn't comprehensive, but that list gave 92 political parties that are now defunct. A few of them had interesting names, such as the American Vegetarian Party. I would not have been interested in that party. Maybe the American Meat Eaters Party, you know, Eat More Chicken Party, Eat More Beef Party. Sorry if that offends you vegans. Another party was the Dixiecrat Party. They, They pushed to maintain segregation. Free Soil Party, they, they lasted six years. They had a platform to keep Western soil free from, from slavery. There was another party called the Nullifier Party. They wanted to be able to nullify federal laws within each state. There was the Readjusters Party. They wanted to readjust the power of the privileged elite down to the common person. The Bucktails Party, and they were identified by wearing a bucktail on their hat. The anti-administration party, and you can kind of guess what their platform was. These are all parties that that, that were formed and, and they had their unique platforms, but the light went out on them. So it seems that we've forgotten the political parties come and go. So what if your party, what if your party, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, what? What if all of a sudden your party would lose steam and disappear? What would that do to your identity? Would you have an identity crisis? So so here's the question. Why would we as residents of another kingdom that, you know, we're just immigrants. Did you know that? We're immigrants. We're aliens passing through this earth on on a way to a land that is fairer than day where there will be complete peace and and. No tears and no suffering and no sorrow and no death and no night and no disease and no CNN and no Fox News. Why would we allow ourselves to be divided by shifting political platforms? Not to mention that political parties generally flip-flop on issues anyway. John Kerry, and you know that I rarely mention the names of political characters in my messages because I don't believe God has called us as a church to publicly name and shame people in our government. uh, Faith and I were talking about it yesterday. I said, okay, hon, before I make this statement, is there any place in the Bible where it says we need to name and shame our leaders in government? And I couldn't come up with any, but there are plenty of places where it says we're to pray for our leaders. But, but John Kerry, anyway, the, the, the former longtime senator from Massachusetts, also former presidential candidate, said something in, in 2003, and, and, and this statement was a flub on his part, but I thought it was brilliant. And that's the only reason I'm mentioning it, because it was brilliant. Perfectly describes the politics of both parties. He said this, I actually voted for it before I voted against it. That was brilliant. I'm serious, Um, because it, it perfectly describes the politics of both parties. I actually voted for it before I voted against it. It was in reference to funding the war in Iraq. Brilliant. 
because that describes your political party, Republican or Democrat. And so why would we allow any political view, a view that our political party will probably soon change its mind on, why would we allow it to divide us from an actual, an actual living, breathing person that Jesus died for, such as the person that lives next door, the person that has struggles and heartaches just like you? Why would we allow these kinds of things to divide us and in so doing derail and compromise our mission of bringing people to Christ? And yes, of course, the, the, the body of Christ down through history has, has disagreed on many things. And, and disagreement isn't always bad. In fact, a lot of times disagreement is healthy. We're not wanting to produce a bunch of clones at this church. But we do want to produce the body of Christ that is in harmony and unity, has different functions where we show our love for each other, where we show our love for Jesus. And whenever we do that, that's going to fuel the mission and help people see that Jesus is the Savior. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Pastor, you're so naive. I know you're supposed to say what you're saying because you're paid to do that. But, but Pastor, do you realize we are now post-Christian? In other words, our best days are now behind us. You've heard that term, post-Christian. Uh, you know, Pastor, if you look at the political divide and the racial divide, the economic divide, the philosophical divide, the moral divide, isn't it naive to think that the church can really make much of a difference anymore? I mean, we're called a cult, and some of our leaders actually feel like that the church is the problem with America. So isn't that naive to think that the church can make much of a difference anymore? And I, I don't think so. And, and here's why. Because naive is this. Naive is a meek, unknown first century rabbi from the area that Rome considered to be the geographical armpit of the Roman Empire because that was such a hated area. Rome considered that as the armpit of Rome. But Naive is a meek, unknown first century rabbi standing out in the hot Middle Eastern sun that's probably hotter than the temps we're going to have this next week. And he's talking to 12 guys that were fishermen, uneducated, very common people who had no political clout, nothing going for them. They were not movers and shakers. But this rabbi, this meek, unknown rabbi saying, men, I'm going to build my church. Which, by the way, at that time was illegal. Did you know that? To build the church was illegal. But Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And, and hell will not overcome. The gates of hell will not overcome it. And, um, and these 12 men, they look around with that deer-in-the-headlight look. And, and you're going to do what? You're going to build your church with us? If you're looking for something naive, that's naive. But what happened? This is amazing. The church had humble beginnings. It began small with just 12 who walked and served with Jesus. But it began to grow. By the time the day of Pentecost was about to come, there were 120 meeting for prayer. Can you imagine having a prayer meeting of 120 people? 
But then came the day of Pentecost. And the church had a great explosion. Peter preached an anointed message. And by the end of that day, the church had gone from 120 to 3,120. By the year 38 AD, it had grown to about 20,000 people. By the year 100, they say there was one of us for every 360 unbelievers. By the year 1,000, there was one of us for every 220 unbelievers. Today it's said that there's one of us for every seven unbelievers. They say that there are two billion of us around the world. They say that every 24-hour period, 100,000 people come to know Jesus Christ. So was it naive for Jesus to say that his church would be built? Probably. But there's no debating the results. His truth is marching on. He is building his church. And so as we wrap things up, really there's only one thing that can stop the church. Powerful Rome couldn't stop the church. The days of gladiators throwing Christians to wild animals couldn't stop the church. Joseph Stalin and his communistic regime that killed an estimated 20 to 30 million people couldn't stop the church. Hitler's ovens that killed 6 million couldn't stop the church. No political party can stop the church. No oppressive government can stop the church. No Supreme Court can stop the church. No riots, no protests can stop the church. And and I say this very carefully, but even the devil alone can't stop the church. The only thing that can stop the church is the church. The only thing that can stop the church is when we lose our unity. And we take our eyes off of God and begin to bicker and argue over things that in light of eternity are petty and childish and insignificant. So in a day and an age of high tensions and disagreements and divisions and social media outbursts, as we come up to July 4th, church, don't forget that Christ prayed to his father that in our diversity... That during immigration disagreements, that during COVID opinions, during different ideas on the ways that a country should be governed, Christ's request in his prayer was that we would be one. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Christ's prayer for the 4th of July for America. That we would be one. Again, We don't want to compromise truth. We don't want to compromise principles, biblical principles, godly values. But you know what? What has divided us so much isn't really cardinal truths in the Bible. What's divided us? This sounds so silly, doesn't it? Politics. And and I say this, and this sounds so silly, but what's divided us? masks what's divided us our opinion on different things that in light of eternity they're not going to make a difference so church don't compromise stay true to the word to biblical principles don't compromise stand up but when it comes to opinions on things that do not make any difference eternally. Could we just love each other?
could we stand together? Because united, united, this church is going to be strong. But divided, this church will stall. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, I want to thank you for our country. Lord, we thank you for our country. We don't worship our country. We thank you for our country. Lord, we don't worship our flag. We thank you for our flag. We don't worship our pledge. We thank you for our pledge. But God, we worship you. Lord, we worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God who gave his life. And so, Lord, don't let us, uh, don't let us cause the mission of the church to be compromised and stall because of some of the silliness on social media or the back and forth stuff. God, I pray that we would keep the main thing the main thing. And Lord, in our different opinions, which is good, Lord, we can have different opinions on all of these surface things, and that's all right. But God, that we would not lose the unity that you've given us here. Lord, just seeing at the 60 kids that were here on the stage, and God, we don't want to see... We don't want to see, God, their lives changed because of a church that's bickering. But God, I pray that you would just help us to be united in the name of Jesus. So Father, as we move into the fourth celebration, some will be meeting this evening and, and tomorrow. And God, again, we thank you for America. Lord, we want America to be good. We want America to be godly. But Lord, we want to serve you and exalt the name of Jesus above all names. Thank you for your goodness. We love you. And it's in your name we ask these favors. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.